and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, we are talking with David Miliband, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the International Rescue Committee, the IRC. He was previously UK Foreign Secretary and today leads one of the world's great NGOs. We're going to be talking about the remarkable work, the plight of refugees and displaced persons, and also looking a little bit at some of the differences that he's encountered between being a foreign secretary and now leading an NGO. Before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, to large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they are able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. In 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. Incidentally, since today we are talking about the plight of refugees, it's worth highlighting some interesting research Quilt AI have done for Sesame Street in Bangladesh, leveraging digital to better understand marginalized communities. They targeted a range of keyword searches and online activities in hard-to-reach communities. They utilized Dragnet technology to pinpoint digital activity and were able to compare and contrast refugee online behavior with host community behavior in order to uncover key areas of interest and unmet needs. They used the power of artificial intelligence to articulate these searches and online posts in order to determine deeper psychological needs interpreted through machine learning in a language agnostic way. Fascinating stuff, so do check them out at quilt.ai. Today, it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show David Miliband, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the International Rescue Committee. David is someone who needs very little introduction. I will say that he was UK Foreign Secretary before joining the IRC, and today we're going to be talking about their remarkable work, the plight of refugees and displaced persons, and also looking at some of the differences that David has encountered from the time he was foreign secretary to his current role leading one of the world's great NGOs. Without further ado, David, a heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I'm here in London, you're there in New York. Let's find out by hearing a little bit about the IRC, the International Rescue Committee. What's it all about? So the International Rescue Committee has an extraordinary heritage. You can't ask for better than to be founded by Albert Einstein. But the International Rescue Committee was founded by Albert Einstein, one of the world's most famous refugees. He was in America at Princeton when Hitler came to power. And he founded the International Rescue Committee, the Emergency Rescue Committee at the time, um, in the 1930s. And he founded the organization out of a burning sense that while he was safe, so many others were not safe from the Nazis. Our first employee was an incredible man called Varian Fry, who was a New York Times journalist who situated himself 
in Marseille, in occupied France, Nazi-occupied France in 1940-41. And he showed the courage, commitment, ingenuity that we like to pride ourselves on. He issued 2,000 fake passports to Jews, to um, intellectuals, uh, to those who were persecuted by the Nazis, people who um, then escaped. Uh, Marc Chagall was saved by Varian Fry. So we feel we're standing on some extraordinary shoulders. Um, the organization uh, went through a period um, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. It was helping those persecuted, including under communism. Um, but in the last 30 years, it's become a large international humanitarian aid organization with a particular angle to it, an angle that attracted me to come and become the CEO seven years ago, and we can talk about that. Here's the angle. We're not a general anti-poverty organization. We're not mm. trying to boil that ocean. We're an organization whose purpose is to help people whose lives are shattered by conflict, persecution, and disaster. Uh, we work in 40 countries, not 140 countries. We work in what we call the arc of crisis, from the war zone in Syria or Yemen or Afghanistan, uh, through to the internally displaced, the homeless in their own country who've had to flee to um, the houses of cousins or, or, or strangers, uh, in refugee hosting states. And, and you know probably that most refugees are in poor countries, not in rich countries. They're in yeah. Bangladesh or Ethiopia or in Jordan, not in, uh, not in the United States or, or in Europe. And then we complete the journey for those who are displaced. We, we run programs to help integrate um, Americans, new Americans, into 25 cities across the United States. We're the largest refugee resettlement agency in America, also the number one rated for quality, which is very important to me. And we also do similar work in Germany, interestingly enough, we one of the things that I said to the board of the International Rescue Committee when I applied for the job seven years ago was that um, our origins are in the trauma of Nazism, and it's right that we should not just be raising money from the German government and the German taxpayer, which we are doing now, and German philanthropists, but we should also be uh, working in Germany because they um, have an interest in the refugee resettlement of the Syrians who came after 2015. So I'm very proud that we're working in a thousand German schools, helping integrate Syrians into German yeah. schools, and also in the labor market to make for success, because we believe that we should see uh, refugees and displaced people, not just as a quote unquote burden, uh, but as people with potential to become patriotic and productive citizens. So that's the probably more than 30 second uh, elevator pitch. Just remember the Albert Einstein bit. Yeah, that's uh, that's a key one. That's a key one. And what's your organization look like then? How many people are working there? Where where are you operating? So we've more or less doubled in size in the last five or six years, partly because of increasing needs and partly because we've got better and the money's followed us. I mean, we're now an $825 million a year organization. Okay. Uh, we have 13,000 employees and 17,000 auxiliary day staff in 200 field sites in the 40 countries that I mentioned. Uh, we are 75% government funded and 25% privately funded. That private support has doubled in the last five years as a percentage of our total take. And we're an organization that works um, to uh, clear outcomes. We, we, we ensure that every single one of our programs fulfills one of the outcomes that we're pursuing survival, health, education, income, and increased power for the beneficiary. And so uh, the shorthand is that we 
um, are tackling uh, short-term emergency, but also long-term problems. And that's why we are proud to not just be a social service organization keeping people alive until they can go home, because the truth is they don't go home. Less than 3% of the world's refugees went home last year. And that's yeah. why we have to be concerned with livelihoods, with economic opportunity, but also with education, because we're talking about multi-generational um, displacement. And just for the benefit of your listeners, the benefit of you and your listeners, um, the, the size of the problem is often perceived to be daunting for people. But let me just give you two riffs about the way to understand the, the, the size of the problem and the scope of the problem that we're dealing with. Um, 80 million people are forcibly displaced from their homes. About 45 million of them are internally displaced, so they're still in Syria or they're still um, in um, South Sudan. Uh, 35 million are refugees and asylum seekers. In other words, they've crossed into another country, a neighboring country or a third country beyond. And for the first time since records began after the Second World War, more than 1% of the world's population are now forcibly displaced. So have that in mind. Second thing is that we've just published our emergency watch list for 2021. Your listeners can find it on the International Rescue Committee's website, rescue.org. And that points out that 20 countries where we fear humanitarian crisis is going to get worse this year, those 20 countries, they're only 10% of the world's population, but they are 88% of the world's humanitarian crisis. And that's, that's important because when you think about it as 20 countries, it suddenly seems more manageable than 80 million people who are fleeing from conflict. And if you look at the top 10, what you see is that conflict, climate crisis, and COVID come together to be driving the increase in humanitarian need. So we're an agency that believes that you can't just be health or just be education or just be water and sanitation because people don't have problems like that. The people who've got health problems often have got education problems or often have water and sanitation problems too. And you've got to try and help the whole family, not just um, live according to the sectors that we uh, are funded by. Fascinating. And where do you start? So, I mean, the, the, the context, the picture that you've, you've given us here is, is, is a sobering one. Uh, the numbers are not small. And you, you mentioned intergenerational elements and also the fact that thematically speaking, things are intertwined. You know, health doesn't just stand on its own. Education doesn't just stand on its own. Where do you start? And are you doing the operations yourselves? Well, you start with a proper needs assessment. I mean, if it's an emergency, then what counts is water and sanitation, uh, um, healthcare, and cash, because the market economy is global. Uh, people are surprised sometimes about that. They say, well, what about food? The truth is, the first three days, water, health, and cash are the most important uh, responses. Um, secondly, it's really important to say, well, who else is there? We have very strict entry and exit criteria. And we, we do ask the first question, well, what are the needs? The second question is, who else is there? Because if someone else is doing the work, then we don't need to be there. And I don't, we're not trying to grow for the sake of growing. We're growing because we think that we have got something distinctive to offer through our focus, through our research and evidence work. We're the largest impact evaluation agency in the humanitarian sector. And through our innovation, I think we're widely seen to run an R&D team, research and development team that is pretty special. Um, and so... Uh, the second thing we ask is, well, who else is there? And the third thing we ask is, well, what's the levels of poverty and vulnerability? Mm -hmm. um, because if that's an important decider. Now, unfortunately, there's too much poverty and too much vulnerability and not enough people 
helping the most marginalized and that's why um, we're growing but we're not we're not growing for the sake of growing i'm really proud that we have an exit entry and exit criteria because otherwise you do end up boiling the ocean now when you say who else is there and so forth and you are growing you are a successful organization i think your your reputation is is excellent as well does it ever present the problem that you have a certain profile do do governments perhaps say look uh you know what we actually don't want you coming in here well no but i tell you here, here's the way or, or not quite in the way that you're saying first of all you, you you ask this well who else is there so governments are sometimes there but sometimes they're the problem let's be honest um other ngos are there but also local ngos are sometimes there and so we've got to be we've got to have humility secondly um we sound big but compared to the scale of the problem we're not i mean the truth about the humanitarian sector is it's very fragmented you know we've got a 30 million dollar program in yemen i'm incredibly proud of what our teams are doing mm -hmm. there amazing work in the most difficult circumstances hopefully getting better with a change of course from the biden administration but we're a 30 million dollar program there are 20 million people in humanitarian need there and the truth about the humanitarian sector is that the problems are complex and too much of the funding is simplistic the problems are long term and the funding is short term and the problems are intertwined and the sector is fragmented and so that's what we're battling against so i wouldn't want people to have the sense that um 825 million dollars well that is a big thing but i'm not sitting here with 825 million dollars yeah 75 of it is on restricted grants that we win so we're not choosing that pakistan reading project teacher education is important here or water and sanitation is important there government ministries are deciding we think we want to do a water project in niger then we have to bid for it so it's a very fragmented sector and it's not layered up to the sustainable development goals in an accountable and um, metric driven way and that's one of our frustrations okay why, why isn't it could could you map it up to the sdg yes and we've argued for that that actually you'll you'll not reform the humanitarian sector by institutional reorganization you'll reform it through accountability for outcomes and we've been arguing very strongly that until the sustainable development goals have targets for crisis affected populations not just poor ones and especially in four areas of income health education and gender equality unless you have outcomes so that if you're running a refugee camp you know you're held accountable for the safety of the women there if you're running a development program you can't just leave out the migrant populations until you get that accountability you don't get the actions hmm interesting well you have the mdgs now the sdgs maybe there's something to be said for having your fingerprints on the next set for the 15 years from 2030 to 2045 well we'd like it although we can't wait till 2030 and i always say to our private supporters you know they're our risk capital um but they're also our reach capital they help us go to places that governments aren't going to and of course we're living in a time when you know this living in london the uk government has re reduced its um humanitarian aid spending at a time when humanitarian needs are going up uh, it's reduced its development spending that's um been the, the attempt of the trump administration and the us and uk are two very big donors and um, the eu's growing its aid programs germany's holding them steady um but this isn't a yet a this is a time when needs are growing from the populations support from governments is at best flat and sometimes declining so you've got a growing gap between need and provision and that's why our private supporters companies individuals philanthropists foundations are our risk capital for innovation because governments are leery of 
risk. And it's our reach capital too for um, marginalized communities. And marginalized, by the way, women and girls, you know, it's half the population, but they're marginalized in too many aid programs. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about your, your, your funding uh, structure or funding streams. Three quarters of our support comes from governments. Um, we run about 450 international grants for um, and contracts that we've won from governments. They're pretty short term. I mean, it's sort of 11, 12 months often. Okay. And so an average of a you know, million to $2 million a year per, per grant and contract. Then in the um, foundation and philanthropic sector, we're now 25% of um, $825 million, which is not to be sneezed at. Um, we've got some great corporate and foundation partners. Um, we, we, we are so proud to have won the MacArthur 100 and Change Award, the $100 million prize that we won with Sesame Workshop to tackle um, trauma of kids in the Middle East as a result of the Syria war. We're also very proud of our partnership with Lego in East Africa, uh, Play Matters, which is a, an incredible partnership of investment in young people and making sure that their social and emotional development as well as their academic development is probably rooted. We're doing that in three African, East African countries, which is great. Um, and then we have smaller family foundations that have um, helped us and that are committed to the kind of agenda around impact, evidence, innovation that we think is so value for money that we think is so important. Mm -hmm. And on that last bit, let me ask you, so there are many philanthropically minded individuals, high net worth individuals, smaller foundations, not like Lego Foundation or MacArthur, but, you know, smaller. And um, sometimes they're looking for guidance in terms of where they can get involved. They might have an idea that they, they're keen about gender equity or they're keen about refugees, but that's the extent of it. And they don't have any in-house technical expertise. Um if they pick up the phone, if they get in, you know, if they get in touch with you guys, how, what does that process look like? Because I'm sure that you're not just looking for somebody to give you a check, even though that that's probably not going to be a problem. But I'm sure you you want that collaborative journey and and working together with with long term partners. Yeah, I mean, look, let me. I mean, I won't use the name, but yesterday um, I, I spoke to someone from a family foundation who's been a donor to us for ten or fifteen years and who this week decided to give us one and a half million dollars. Right. And how does that happen? First of all, it happens through listening. We have to listen. You know, we're proud of what we do. We're zealous for speaking for our clients. But the first thing we do is listen. Because if you don't listen to where people or foundations are coming from, then you're not really showing respect. I, I used to be in politics and Politics is partly about talking, but I always used to say the best politicians are good listeners as well. Mm. And so the first thing you do is listen. I think the second thing is you try and explain where we're coming from because real partnerships are based on shared respect. It's not the donor doing what the, what the organization wants. It's not us doing what they want. It's a shared endeavor where we learn from each other and we go on a journey from each other with each other. And in the case I'm thinking about yesterday, as it happens, we had a, a staff member from uh, who was on leave in the hometown of the person who gave us the this one and a half million dollar grant. And that was a, an important thing because she, this donor wanted to support a hometown girl, as the way she put it, quote unquote, and was really impressed by the work that this person was was doing. So I suppose the third thing is you, you first you listen, um, second you uh, try and explain where we're coming from and the the emphasis that we put on impact and innovation and value for money. Um, 
and transparency is important to that. We don't hide that we, we spend money on human resources so that we hire good people. We spend money on safety and security because we want our people to be safe. Uh, we spend money on IT because we wouldn't have been able to go remote during the COVID crisis if we haven't. Now, that sometimes doesn't appear as quote-unquote program money, but to call that bureaucracy or red tape or admin isn't fair. It's absolutely uh, critical. I think the third thing you have to do is find points of connection, uh, like the quote-unquote hometown girl point. And then fourthly, I like your point that it's not just write a check and see you in three years' time. Um, the, the sense that you know, we, we love doing real visits. We have to, in COVID age, you can do virtual visits. We always try and put our staff and clients first. We don't want to put them in it. We don't want sort of humanitarian tourism. But the, uh, the, the, the sense that we're, we've got staff and clients who want to tell their story is something that's really meaningful, I think, to, to, to donors. We also have to tell the truth to donors. We have to say, look, multi-year is much more important, is, is, is invaluable because it allows us to plan. And we're not going to pretend to you we can solve these problems in five minutes. Um, we also have to say to people, look, below a certain level, give us unrestricted support because we can't design a special restricted program unless it's a, of a substantial size. So in the case of um, the one and a half million dollars we got yesterday, uh, that's about extend, extending a program that we've already got. So there's a third lesson. I always say to people, we don't, want, we don't need more boutique programs in the humanitarian sector. What we need is to scale the programs that we know work. And I think that's a degree of honesty that's important. And there's a real sincerity, I think, about the way the International Rescue Committee works. And I feel this from the top of the organization, from the board. It's full of sincere people who, who, who want to understand and do serious work. And that requires us to be honest with, with, with donors as well. Yeah. And you mentioned the... Um multi-year you know multi-year is much better than than just a, a one-off transaction and um what are the sort of if there is such a thing as different price points but at what point can somebody say look okay i'm giving you unrestricted at what point could they say okay could i be involved in that conversation in terms of what the program looks like or how it plays out well the conversation can always be can always be um real but put it this way if you're talking about half a million dollars, you can't design a new program for half a million dollars. What you can do is expand the reach of an existing program. Um, and so we could say to people, look, um, we want to expand our network of legal centers in this, towards the southern border of the United States because that's a key way of allowing asylum seekers to exercise their rights. Or we can say we've got an amazing community-based education program in northeast Nigeria. We want to extend that. Um, if you come along with $100 million, then we'll create a new program. And that's what we've done with the MacArthur uh, Foundation and with uh, Lego. And that's really exciting because we're co-creating something that's genuinely, genuinely new. Right. And what are you extremely excited about today? And, and by that, you know, it's, it's difficult to say I'm excited about something having to do with, with, with addressing uh, refugee challenges, which can be very distressing. But um, yeah. Well, will you let me give? Will you let me give two two examples of things that excite me? Go for it. One I've mentioned already, which is this uh, MacArthur program that we're doing with Sesame Workshop in the Middle East, where where kids between the ages of three and eight are being exposed to digital and personal content and contact, and we're tackling in the most severe cases what's called toxic stress, so brain trauma um, that comes from kids seeing terrible things in war, which is what's happening in Syria. 
um, and we're working inside Syria as well as in Jordan and Lebanon with the refugees and a little bit um, in Iraq. And it's a very exciting program. We're now in year four. It's been very, very difficult because of COVID, because of course, so much of tackling trauma is about bringing people together. And you can't do that in the same way in COVID. But the innovation to use WhatsApp and to use to go through carers um, has been really, really positive. The learning materials are fantastic. So I'm uh, Sesame Workshop are an amazing organization. So we're working with them. It's been really great. Um, now, let me give you a second one where I, I, I'm really on the rampage uh, because in, in, out Let's hear it. in outrage, but also in inspiration. <laughs> okay. Um, and it, it, it starts in a very dark place. Um, there are 50 million un acutely malnourished under five-year-olds in the world today. And 17 or 18 million of them are in fragile states of the kind that the International Rescue Committee works with. And 80% of those acutely malnourished under five-year-olds are getting no help at all from the international system. So that's why we should all be angry. And the system's stuck. The system's a bit divided between moderate acute malnutrition and severe acute malnutrition, which are two different World Health Organization protocols. But over three or four years ago, the innovation team and the, research, the health research team at the IRC, at the International Rescue Committee, came together to say, look, we need a new model for tackling acute malnutrition among under five-year-olds. And instead of having severe acute malnutrition and moderate acute malnutrition as different work streams, we should create a combined protocol because it's the same disease. It's just quantitatively different, but acute malnutrition is the same disease, whether it's severe or moderate. And they've created a protocol for uh, tackling, uh, for assessing, diagnosing, and then treating severe and acute malnutrition with a single unified protocol. And they've shown how it can be delivered through community health workers, not through health centers. In other words, we've turned up on its head the model of to get treated, you have to go to a healthcare center, which in South Sudan might mean a three-hour walk with conflict and all sorts of other trauma going on. We've shown how you can go to community health workers, which are already used through integrated case management, which is well known in the health field, how you take the healthcare to the people rather than expecting the people to get the healthcare. Now, here's the most amazing thing that our team did with a human-centered design. Many of the community health workers are low literacy and low numeracy. Right. And what we've designed is training tools so that low literate and low numerate community health workers can diagnose acute malnutrition, severe or moderate, using an upper arm circumference measure that has colors and no numbers on it. And then a prescription dosage system that is also based on colors and no numbers and a patient registration system that is based on thumbprints, not on signatures, because many of the clients um, are low literacy as well. It. And we're trialing this in Kenya, in, in Somalia, in Mali, uh, South Sudan, but we, we desperately need partners to do more. We're excited that UNICEF have now been in significant part as a result of the work we've been doing, partly in partnership with them. UNICEF have now been made the sole lead agency in the UN system for this. We're, we're developing partnership with them. Uh, we are uh, excited about the way the World Food Programme want to support it because they are um, uh, technically responsible for moderate acute malnutrition at the moment, but they're going to work with this uh, leadership of, the, of UNICEF. And but what we need is risk capital to do more of the randomized control trials to prove that our the different elements of our system, which we've shown, where we've shown there's no negative impact 
on severely acutely malnourished children from being in this combined protocol. And we've also shown that community health workers can diagnose and prescribe in a way that's no worse than the medical facility. But we, so we've done them separately. Now we need to do them together. And so what am I excited about? I mean, I'm appalled by the fact that we've got 80% of severely, of acutely malnourished under five-year-old kids not getting the help they need. But I'm excited that we're at the forefront of trying to change that. And I hope that by taking the message out through um, podcasts like this, we can get people engaged. They can write to me, david.milliband at rescue.org, or um, just go to our website, rescue.org. But I w- those are things that make me feel that you, th- these are problems that can be cracked because there's so much that, that, is, that, that, that can be done. Excellent. Tell me, how did you end up where you are today? First of all, it sounds like a... A, it's a highly consequential job, but it also sounds like a dream job. And uh, and just your trajectory is fascinating from, from the world of UK politics here where, where you, were, you were foreign secretary and now you've been there at the IRC uh, for coming up to a decade. Uh, no, seven years. I'm not that old yet. All right, seven years. And uh, yeah, give us a little bit of a flavor for that journey. Well, I mean, I, I got here through successes and failures. I mean, life is never... a seamless uh, journey um i was very lucky and to, to to be part of a remarkable political project in the uk which made the labor party electable rather than unelectable and led us to, to three election victories um, and helped change the country in really in ways that we felt were fundamental but in various ways have been rolled back in the last decade uh, uh but I, I i was lucky enough to be foreign secretary in gordon brown's government uh, 2007 to 2010 uh, Madden Albright always says there's no greater honor than to represent your country. Mm. And uh, I, I felt that very strongly, very proud to be British and uh, feel that um, that phrase confidence and humility is really appropriate to the way in which you think about patriotism is not the same as nationalism. Patriotism is being proud of your own country without thereby disabusing or doing down other countries. Um, nationalism is a zero sum game. Patriotism is just being proud of your own country, but open to the great things about other countries. And, um, but uh, it was um, snuffed out my period as uh, foreign secretary by the fact that we lost the election in 2010. Uh, I lost the leadership election in the Labour Party in 2010. I remained a member of parliament, which is a great thing about the British system. I was the member of parliament for South Shields, which I really feel a great bond towards and a great sense of gratitude. I learned so much from my constituents and feel very connected um, to people that I wasn't from South Shields, but I feel it's in the northeast of England. I feel very connected there. But in 2012, 2013, I felt that um, I'd reached a, a bit of a dead end. I uh, was in the uncomfortable position of, e- of either being divisive or being uh, uh, dishonest about what I really thought, and that's not a good situation to be in in politics. And so um, I wanted to use my skills and experience and the job came up at the International Rescue Committee in 2013, which seems like a long time ago and in various ways is a long time ago. Mm. But I, um, you know, the traditional view of the humanitarian sector has been that it's, it's rightly independent of politics. That's very important. But that doesn't mean it's separate from politics because we're dealing with the consequences of failed politics. And so I always say to people that as a, as a politician and certainly as a foreign minister, you're looking through one end of the telescope. You've got the bird's eye view and the danger is that you miss the people. In an NGO, you're looking from the other end of the telescope. The great thing is you can see the people. The danger is that you miss the big picture. 
And what I try and do in my job is be halfway along the telescope and you can see both ends and you don't get trapped in the middle. And uh, that's what I'm trying to do. And it's been a very, very lucky job. I feel very proud. You said dream job. I mean, it's been great learning every day and great experience. And I feel I've put my heart and soul into it and that's good. And we've got lots of people helping us. So that's good as well. Is it a is it a very different world being in, in government versus running an NGO like you do? And you know, do your emails get replied to in the same manner? Do do are you able to have the same conversations that you had before? Um, no, you you can't. I mean, let's be honest. You've got much less power if you're the head of the NGO than if you're the head of a if you're if you're the foreign minister of a P five or a permanent member of the Security Council. Um, but you also, I always say to people. You've got more power in government, but you've also got more obstacles to exercising it, both in your own system and from others. In an NGO, you've got less power, but 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 fewer obstacles, mm. and so that's the that's the trade-off. Indeed, tell me a little bit about success for the next ten years. So the SDGs twenty thirty is that target year. Um, what is it that if if you and I were having another podcast or a coffee in New York uh, in twenty thirty and looking back? What would you like to see? Uh... Well, I can never conceive that I'm 55. So God help me to be 65 is just totally antithetical to my uh, sense of self. Um, but here's the thing. I have learned in the war zones in which we work that there's a rise in impunity, the abuse of international humanitarian law, the abuse of civilians, the contravention of international norms. And the way I conceive the next decade is that there's a battle between accountability and impunity. Accountability means checks and balances on the use of power. Impunity is power without responsibility, as Baldwin and Kipling, who, by the way, were cousins, both said um, power without responsibility, the refuge of the harlot throughout the ages. And I think there's a, at a macro geopolitical level, there is a battle between accountability and impunity. And obviously, my concern is that the people that we serve at the International Rescue Committee are the, uh, are the most oppressed when it comes to impunity. If you think about the Rohingya who were driven out of Myanmar, um, it doesn't get worse than that. Uh, you and I share a heritage in European Jewry. And we were saying before the podcast, when, when, when people said never again after the Holocaust, they didn't just mean never again for Jews. They meant never again for anyone. And they built international institutions designed to say what happened to the Jews of Europe should never happen again to anyone. And so when we think about impunity, I think about what happens to the Rohingya in Myanmar and that project of never again has failed. So uh, impunity hits hits us the hardest. So my um, view is that within that battle for accountability and impunity, which involves profound issues about democracy, human rights, liberalism, Uh, There's a portion of it which is about the work that we do. I think that at the moment we've got a humanitarian sector that works according to a model of humanitarian need that's a bit out of date. It's a model of humanitarian need that people are displaced for a short period of time before they go home. It's a model of humanitarian need that that refugees are the product of wars between states when in fact they're the product of wars within states. Um, It's a model that says refugees are in camps, whereas 60% of refugees are in urban areas, not in camps. So the model's a bit out of date, but the sector doesn't yet operate like a system. 
And so what's my vision for the humanitarian sector, I don't know about 10 years, but as soon as possible, is that we become a system, not just a sector. In other words, where there's not just shared mission, but there are shared incentives and shared outcomes that we've talked about. Uh, but also, and I think this is critical, it's a, it's a system that's working to tackle the problems as they are with tools that are relevant and modern, rather than problems as they used to be with tools that aren't applicable to the world we live in. And that's the, that's the flip that we need to make as we try and shift from a humanitarian sector to a humanitarian system. Hmm. Are you feeling optimistic about the direction of travel? Putting COVID aside. Well, I always say to people, what right do we have sitting in comfort to be pessimistic? So I prefer to suspend judgment and say that while our clients are courageous and resilient and are able to smile when they think about the, the hopes for their children, then we, we, better, we, better, we better stay optimistic. Yeah. If you, uh, there was this famous saying, or not very famous, but a saying that should be famous from someone who went to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And they said, if you look at the statistics, you get depressed. If you look at the people, you have hope. And that's my motto. Excellent. Excellent. Do you have a key takeaway for our listeners today? Anything in particular that you think, look, if they, if they remember one thing about today's show, please keep this in mind. I think that the one thing I always try to uh, say to people is that the that phrase the moral arc of the universe is long but it bends towards justice it was a phrase that was popularized by martin luther king um it'll only bend towards justice the moral arc of the universe will only bend towards justice if it is bent that way and the most important thing i think for your listeners is not to be daunted by the scale of the problem because the Truth is that the humanitarian crises we face in the 20 countries that I highlighted earlier that are responsible for 88% of humanitarian need, those problems are only unmanageable if we don't manage them. So don't fall for a, the disempowerment that says these problems are insoluble. That's the prophecy of doom. And if your listeners want to remember that there is an organization out there that's about solutions rather than suffering, then we're it. Excellent. David, it really has been an absolute pleasure hosting you the Do One Better podcast today. You've been listening to David Miliband, who's the president and chief executive officer of the International Rescue Committee. David, really great. Thank you, Alberto. Nice to be in touch with you. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with David Miliband. I certainly did. If you want to find out more, do reach out to them. Check them out. They're doing some remarkable work. I'm a fan. I've donated to them, and I encourage you to take a look at them as well. For a full transcript of today's conversation, please visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And you'll also be able to find information on over 100 other conversations with remarkable leaders from the field of philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. Please do me a favor and click that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. And also, please do leave us a review if you like the show. It's very much appreciated. Thank you very much. See you next week.